Good morning and welcome to worship. Our first hymn this morning is number 392 by the hymn writer Lowell Mason in 1856, Nearer My God to Thee. Thank you. 
Let us begin our service in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our scripture reading is found in Psalm 111, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 10. And we read in the name of Jesus. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart, in the assembly of the upright, and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He hath showed his people the power of his works, that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Amen. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we come before you doing as the psalmist says, gathering in the assembly of the congregation and praising you for all of the great things that you have done. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here together, for blessing us with the fellowship that we have as your children. And we pray that as we gather here, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the words of eternal life. We pray, dear Father, that you would be present here with us. We pray for those who are unable to join us today, those who may be confined to their homes or to hospitals or nursing homes, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would deliver your word to them and that you would be gracious to them and have compassion on them. We also pray for those who are facing tough times or hard situations. We pray for Jamie Ajo and his family. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to be with Jamie during his recovery and be with his family as they are all going through this process of therapy and uncertainty. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that he's in your hands. We also pray for Axel Pakala as he's in the hospital in Minneapolis. We ask that you would, we thank you for his continued recovery and pray that you would continue to help him recover from influenza. We pray also, Lord, for Andy Tumberk, Al Hapasari, Deb Mersu, Don and Bev Hagel, Linda Robbins, Steve Salo, Evan Candle, Barb Lund, Lois Weary, Janet Blickenstaff, Deb Thunberg, Dean Welter, Ron Wallace, Ames and Jacqueline Bruin, Eugene Koskula, and Don and Bai Salo. We ask, Lord, that you would be with all of these people, be their help in time of need. But Lord, we commend them all into your care, praying for the grace to submit to your will, whatever it may be. We also pray, dear Father, for those who are suffering loss, for those who are grieving the loss of family and friends. And Father, we remember the family and friends of Tom Thunberg and Lucas Salguero. And we pray for anyone who is grieving this morning that you would help comfort us in our grief, that you would give us the grace to cast all our cares on you, as the scripture says, for you care for us. We pray for our nation. We ask your blessing upon our leader, that you would give them wisdom as they, as they rule us. We pray for those who serve in our nation's military. We thank you for them and pray that you would protect them. And we pray the same for those who serve our communities. We pray for those who are in Israel and Ukraine and Russia and Palestine. We ask, Lord, that you would 
bring an end to the warfare and violence. We also pray for our enemies, for those who would be causing violence. We pray, God, as the hymn writer writes, bless our foes and cause all eyes to see that peace, O Christ, can only come from thee. We pray for those who preach your word this morning throughout the world, for missionaries and pastors and teachers and parents. And we ask, Lord, that you would make provision for your word, that Jesus would be lifted up, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, and that sinners would be converted, and that those who know you would be confirmed in the faith that you have given them. We pray for our community here in New York Mills. We ask your blessing upon it, upon our leaders, and upon those who are less fortunate. We pray for those who are struggling with poverty, with abuse, with hard situations and tough times, and with illness. And we pray that you would give us the grace to minister to them as you would, have, as you would see fit. We pray for our church here in New York Mills. We ask your blessing upon our leaders and upon our families, upon our husbands and wives, upon our marriages, upon those who are single among us and seeking a godly spouse, upon our children, and upon our elderly. And we pray that you would be with those who are widowers and widows among us, that you would help them in their grief and in their loneliness to, to find fellowship and to find peace and comfort in you. Lord, we commend this service into your fatherly care, praying that in your mercy you would hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now hear us, Lord, as together we pray that most perfect prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not from, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The family of Jamie Ajo selected the hymns for this day. And this next hymn, Be Thou My Vision, um, 469 is a great prayer of uh, prayer to God for direction and wisdom.
I bring you greetings of grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we get into our sermon text, I was asked to bring greetings back to you from the people in Florida. They were thankful that um, uh, you were um, gracious enough to um, send me there. And um, there were many there that wanted me to bring greetings back. We had a blessed time of fellowship around the Lord's word and with his people. Um, uh, for my part, it was, it was a blessing, blessing to go, and um, it's also a blessing to be home. So um, our sermon text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 13. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. And we read in Jesus' name. Now, as touching things of offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth, puffeth up, but charity, charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there, there is none other god but one. For though they be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and in him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscious, conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are, offered to idol, which are offered to idols. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this your word. We pray, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, is dealing with a series of questions that they ask them, and he's giving them general advice and help in their walk as Christians. And in order to understand this text, we have to first understand this issue that they're dealing with, that we don't really trouble ourselves much with today. And that's the idea of food sacrifice to idols. Now Corinth was a very open society. There were a lot of, a mix of different people and different religions. There were tons of different gods worshiped in that city with tons of different temples to those gods. And it wasn't out of the ordinary for them to, um, to have, uh, have feasts where they would offer their sacrifices to their idols, to their false gods, and then that which was left over would go to the priests, and if it was a state-sponsored event, it would go to the, um, 
to like the, the, the leaders of the city, and then um, they would give what's left over to the marketplaces. And on feast days, the food that was left over from the idols would be um, available for those who are partaking in the feast. And it would not be uncommon for a Christian in those days to be invited to someone's house and be offered food that was sacrificed to an idol or to, um, to go and, and process, in the process of building relationships or doing business to be faced with eating food that was sacrificed to an idol. And so this was a real problem because there were those who were in the faith that were newer converts who had eaten those foods and thought that those idols had power, and in doing so, again, would tempt them back into their old faith to think that maybe those idols did have some power. So to help us understand how we got, ought to face this issue of Christian liberty or Christian freedom, Paul says this. He says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. One thing builds up our ego, and the other builds up our neighbor. The King James says charity, but another way we could read that is love. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, um, If I can do all, I, though I have speak in the tongue of men and angels, yet if I have not love, I am nothing but a clanging cymbal or a sounding gong. So Paul frames this discussion of Christian liberty in the idea of knowledge versus love. I um, went to seminary, and um, one of the things that I thought was kind of funny is when we all graduated, um, many of us had people come up to us and ask us, what was, what'd you learn? And you study somewhere for four years, and then they ask you what you learned, and over and again, most of our answers were all the same. I learned how little I know. The more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. I think that's really the mark of someone very um, intelligent in this world is not to claim knowledge, but to actually understand our own ignorance about how things work. But Paul says knowledge puffs us up, but love edifies or builds up. And that's how he frames this discussion. Now, when we talk about Christian freedom, there's two ditches that um, you want to avoid. There's the ditch of legalism that says, by our works, we can merit salvation. And there's the ditch of antinomianism or anti-law, which says, I can do whatever I want because there's grace. I can sin because God will forgive me no matter what. So what does it all matter? Both of those are wrong and should be rejected. But invariably, when you have this discussion, people are led toward one ditch or the other. One of my, um, one of my uh, teachers used to always say, everybody has their own final authority, that which tells them what is good, bad, right, wrong, true, or false. And as Christians, our final authority ought to be God. But very often, in especially areas of Christian freedom, we find that um, our struggle is we want to be the final authority. We want to be the one who determines that which is good, that which is bad, that which is right, that which is wrong, that which is true, and that which is false. And Paul is leading us through this discussion, and the trouble is, is where God's law is clear as far as what sin is, you know, he gives us the Ten Commandments, that's quite exhaustive. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
But there are certain things, like eating food sacrificed to an idol, that are neither approved of by the Bible or condemned, where Christians are free to do or not do. And I could go through an exhausted list of some of those activities, but all that would do is push you into one ditch or the other. The important thing that Paul gets at is that love ought to navigate our relationships with one another. Paul says, I know that idols aren't real, that there's only one God, and that there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom we are, by whom we are made, and whom all things are made. So he says, I know that the idol is nothing. And those who have knowledge, who have this knowledge, understand that the idol is nothing. But when they go to eat in the marketplace, or when they go to eat, and they are eating with someone who does not possess that knowledge, or another way to put it, is tempted into unbelief by those idols, you are not acting in love when you cause them to stumble. We all know there are many things in this world that are neither confirmed or neither approved of by the scriptures nor um, condemned things that we have to operate in freedom, that we have freedom to either participate in or not participate in. And we all know that for various reasons and matters of conscience, um, we don't participate in those things, or we do. When I was a kid, um, my dad had a real problem um, with anything that, um, any kind of game that dealt with cards. And it didn't matter what kind of cards they were. They could be the cards that were used to play poker with, or they could be old made. And my dad just had a real problem with that based on his upbringing or what his parents told him. And so he, um, he wouldn't go as far as saying we couldn't do it, and, but he would um, make sure um, that uh, he, did, he just made it clear that he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't participate in it. And you want to know um, some of my best memories as a kid were... Um, when my dad would go to sleep, sometimes my mom would play games with us. Cherished memories of me as a child playing games with my mother. Now, I really appreciated the way my parents had worked this out. My dad, real hang up with playing cards. You might not understand that at all. Some of you might know because your parents probably had the same thing or you might even have the same thing. But my dad understood that that wasn't something to completely forbid his kids from doing. And so they worked it out that when he wasn't around or in the picture, that my mom was free to do that with us. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about. That we would not drag people down by those things which we consider good, or that we consider not good. So there's one other thing to talk about, because Paul talks about those weaker brothers, those who have weaker faith that don't possess knowledge. What is he talking about? He's talking about those who would be tempted to those activities. Now, throughout the church, there have been what I'm going to call professional weaker brothers. Those people who make a profession out of their weakness. And you have met people like this. People who, not out of true regard for conscience sake, but rather out of a desire to control behavior, will tell people what they can and can't do. 
things that aren't forbidden by Scripture, but also aren't approved of by Scripture, things that we should have freedom to operate, they want to wrestle control over your conscience and make you abide by their rules. And so they claim that they're weak in faith. But notice, Paul does not make a distinction for the weaker brother out of those who would disapprove of your behavior. He is not, the weaker brother is not somebody who um, um, disapproves of your behavior, who knows it's wrong and isn't going to partake in it, and so they say you shouldn't either. The weaker brother is the one who would be swayed to your opinion. The weaker brother that you have to look out for in your life is those who might be tempted to sin because of what you approve of. Do you understand the distinction? It's not someone who's sitting there in disapproval, who knows that it's wrong for them and is never going to do that at all. The weaker brother is the one who would be wounding their conscience by participating in the behavior and really be able to be swayed to do so. And that is a real distinction. And it's worth talking about. Because we could sit here and try to please everyone and, and put a list on our congregation door of all the things that this congregation approves of. But we could go up to, to Spruce Grove and they'd have a different list. We could go to Wadena and they'd have a different list. We could go to Plymouth or Esco and they'd all have different lists. And we might get an A here in New York Mills for following the rules that we've come up with. Then we go and visit somewhere else and we're getting an F because it's all different. Now many of us are of the same background so it might not be that different, but there would be differences. And the scripture doesn't address any of them. And so trying to control people's behavior, what does that sound like? That sounds like knowledge that puffs up. But love doesn't puff up the ego. Love builds up the neighbor. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says something else that I think is quite profound. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Knowledge that puffs up. Self-righteousness and pride. But rather, in lowliness of mind, think of the other as better than yourself. This is the heart of Christian freedom. And he uses Christ as an example, who is our example. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, this is him looking at Jesus as an example. And he says, basically, another way to put it, the, um, Jesus, who is God's son, did not look at equality with God as something for him to take for himself, but rather humbled himself and became obedient, even to the death on the cross. He laid down his life for us. So this is the mind that Paul calls to be in us to esteem the other as more important than ourselves. If you have freedom to do certain things that are not condemned by the scriptures, you are free to do them. 
if your conscience is not wounded. But do not use your freedom as a stumbling block for your neighbor, as a cause of offense or a reason to sin. Paul says for his own right that I would not eat meat again in all of this world if it meant my neighbor to sin. I don't know about you, but I'd have a really hard time not eating meat. It's my favorite food. But Paul says, I would lay that freedom aside for the sake of my neighbor. Again, the neighbor he's talking about isn't the one who, would be contr- who, who, who wants to control your behavior. The neighbor is the one who you would wound by tempting them into that behavior that goes against their conscience. So Paul calls us to look at those around us and esteem them as more important than ourselves. How is that going for you? When you interact with people in the church and we have those theological discussions and we talk about these things, are you more concerned about them or are you more concerned about yourself? I know for my part, I often get caught up in arguments. I very often especially when I'm arguing with my wife, it seems like why we, why we tend to wound those we love the most is the horrible um, aspect of our sin nature, that we're sinners, and so our sin rears its ugly head against those we love the most more often than not. But I get so wrapped up in arguments that I care more about being right than I do the way she feels. And if I'm right, I'm right, and I'll stand on it to the detriment of my wife and my children. And I know I'm not the only one. And when I find myself in theological discussions, well, I'm right. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't think it was right. One of my um, dear friends said, um, if that were the case, I think he said it from here too once. He said, if that were the case, this would have a handle on it so we could club people with it. But how is it when we interact with people? Do we esteem them as better than ourselves? Or do we look at ourselves as being right? When we have those kind of interactions, are we more worried about us getting the right respect and deference? Or are we more concerned about respecting others? And I know I'm not the only one who struggles with this. Our sin is so repugnant to God that we should be concerned about this. How we treat our neighbor is like the thing. Jesus said, whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you have done for me. And whatever you have not done, you have not done for me. And so we might not think that this is that important, but it affects our worship. And honestly, it is our worship. Our service to God is not just rendered in prayer and praise, but in how we treat our neighbor. And if we say we love God, but hate our brother, what are we doing? John makes this quite clear in 1 John chapter 4, and in closing, I'll read it for you. This is how we ought to act. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. We cannot say we love God and then esteem ourselves as more important than our brother. And so we all need to repent. Repent of making the capital I our final authority and caring more about ourselves than we do our neighbor. And what does repentance look like? Well, it's when, we, when our sin is brought before us, we feel that contrition, that godly sorrow that comes across our conscience and tells us what we did was wrong, but it doesn't end there. We also confess faith in Christ. We look to him for forgiveness. And then, the fruit of repentance, which is good works, that is a change of behavior, is what follows. And so you, dear Christian, can believe all your sins forgiven according to the precious name and blood of Jesus. They've been cast as far as the east is from the west, and God does not remember them anymore. But this gospel message is not a driver's license to go and do whatever your sinful flesh wants to do. It's a balm. It's a medicine. It's a salve for your conscience and for your heart that you can get up another day as a sinner but as a sinner saved by grace. And live again. And fail again. But be lifted up by that same God who loves you and sent his son to die for all of your sins. That is our example, laying down our life for one another. And so be at peace, dear Christian. Because though we do not do what we ought to with our own Christian freedom... Christ, our Savior, though he was equal with God, though he was more important than all of us, humbled himself and took our place, stepped into our shoes and laid down his life for you, sinner, hard-hearted that you are, so that when you die, it would not be your sin that God looks at, but it would be his righteousness, his perfection that is placed on your account to set you free, not to sin, but to serve and to love your neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we come before you giving you thanks for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.
And we pray, help us. Let that mind be among us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Take away our desire to be our own final authority. Bring us to repentance that we would look to you and esteem those around us, our neighbors, as more important than ourselves. Give us the grace to live in this world according to your will, to focus on those things that are eternal, and so to live as you would have us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was in the wake of terrible distress and grief that Horatio Spafford in 1873 composed the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way after learning that his wife and family drown in a, in a voyage across the ocean. And so if someone can feel the peace of God through something that difficult, I think that's the lesson for all of us. Him 423. When peace like a river 
Announcements for this week, Wednesday night Bible study at 7. Next Sunday is a communion service at 10.30 with potluck following. And group 7 will be serving. Board members will plan a meeting for February 5th at 7 p.m. Let me know if this doesn't work. And today is the fundraiser meal for the Jamie Ajo family following our service. There will be a collection box at the sign-up table in the fellowship hall. There's a sign-up sheet and you can add a note for Jamie if you wish. Checks should be made out to the Apostolic Lutheran Church memo, Jamie Ajo. And then Pastor Nicholas has a couple of announcements. So the first one is the uh, ski trip um, that was um, that the ESCO Church puts on every year is um, canceled due to um, temperatures in the 40s and not good conditions for skiing. And then um, I've been notified by a couple of you that um, somebody has been sending text messages requesting money in the form of gift cards from me that are pretending to be me. And um, I just want to re reiterate that nobody affiliated with the church or me myself will send you text messages asking for money. If we're raising money for something, you'll know about it here. And if you get any communication from any of us, just don't worry about responding via text. Just call us and confirm it that way. We'd hate for somebody to be taken advantage of. A good rule of thumb to kind of put red flags off. If anyone wants to send you anything and you have, or, or requires payment in the form of gift cards or anything like that, you can know right away that that's, that's a scam. So sorry about that. And uh, we'll do our best to spread awareness. And you guys could too to make sure that nobody gets taken advantage of in that way. The next hymn is 653, Thank Father. You.
Oh, oh.